Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion Podcast. Hello again, uh, we're back for another episode. Hi, Stephen, how are you today? Yeah, I'm good, Paul, and you? Very good, thank you. So who do we have today with us? We have Jacko van der Kooy. Jacko is the founder of Winning by Design, and he basically helps SaaS companies build their sales organizations. Jacko is actually live in the US. Hi, Jacko, how are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. You're from the Netherlands, right? I am. I'm from a small farmer's village in the south of the Netherlands. It's such a great radio voice. All the big DJs in EDM are from the Netherlands, and they all sound great at radio. Probably that's in your DNA or something. Anyway, this is not why we're here. I'm, I'm really gonna... disappointed because you've never said I've got a good voice. <laughs> yeah, but you have a great face for television. Uh, people don't see that, but we are actually recording with cameras today, so we see each other. So, Stephen, do you want to lay a little bit of the ground? What are we going to talk about the topic of today's? episode. Yeah. So look, we invest in very early stage enterprise technology firms across Europe. And those companies, they're all different. And many of them are solving very different problems. And our journey as, as Notion is to, is to really understand how we can help our portfolio companies and, to be honest, the wider ecosystem in enterprise SaaS in Europe to fulfill their potential. And really understanding how to grow how to acquire customers efficiently and to do so more and more productively to building a really large scale and enduring company. And that's why I'm so pleased to have Jacko here. And, and Jacko is working with a number of our portfolio companies in terms of really helping them to, to dig into this topic of how to build a scalable SaaS growth engine. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Stephen. I'm and thank you for a great introduction. You know, like one of the key things that we're looking at when we're growing these SaaS companies is that we really are looking for the passion behind the company. Is this a company that is truly passionate to do something with, with the product that they've built? That is really one of the key areas where we start, you know, like from a mindset perspective. So when I think about that journey, what we call startup, grow up and scale up, you know, Jacko, from, from your perspective, how do you categorize the fundamental SaaS growth challenges at each of those phases? In each of these stages, there's three different, you know, very different challenges. So if I go through the first stage, startup, uh, second stage, grow up, and then the third stage, scale up. If I look at the startup, what really is, is, is one of the key challenges to understand what the true value of the product is that they offer. If a customer buys your product, what are they looking to get from it? In the grow-up phase, really the challenge is how do we apply that to multiple markets and multiple verticals? And so to give you an idea, if the value of your product in SMB is X and you know, like you've scaled the company on, you built a company the first $5 million on that, that does not mean that it actually will scale to 10, 20 or $50 million. And here's why. When you scale up from $5 million, you in generally go to, let's say, 10, 20, 30 million dollars. You cannot do that in a single market. You got to go to the enterprise market. Now, if you go to the enterprise, the bigger box market, and your price goes up, your value needs to go up. And to give you a very basic outline, in SMB, people buy product and expect the service for free. And in enterprise, people buy the service and expect the product for free. Think of that as what the difference that makes for your business if you move from SMB to enterprise, or as some companies do from enterprise to SMB. Let's just break those three stages down a little bit more. So 
I'm in that startup phase. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, in reality, the hypothesis for the grow-up stage. How do you recommend in really early stage companies gather the insight they need to understand that this problem is worth solving on a large scale? Early on, one of the best ways to learn if you're solving the problem correctly is essentially by going back to your customers and talking to them. You know, like it is not that important to achieve 1 million or 2 million in that early stage. Many use some dollar figure as if it's a magical metric number that you surpass and you're scalable. It's not. What is very scalable, if you have 10 customers that when they use your product and you remove it from them, that they would scream bloody murder. That means that you've built something that's scalable. Not one customer, not a few, 10. And when I mean 10, I don't mean 10 friends who bought it from you. I mean 10 real customers that came to you, had a problem and you solved. You should go to those 10 people and you should ask them what you do. Now, here's a very practical sentence that you need to listen for. This is, I'll give you a snippet of what a customer sounds like when you get an idea that you have something scalable. It starts with something like this. When we bought your product, we really thought it could help us with this and this. And although it did that, what we did not know that it actually would also help us with that and that and that. That snippet is a golden snippet that all your CEOs that are out there need to listen for carefully in that stage because that tells you you got something going on. Did you ever hear that phrase yourself, Jaco? Yeah, no, I did. I think I hear this you know, like with our own service that we provide. Some customers come to us and say, hey, we want to scale our revenue. And what they come to the conclusion is like, actually, we in the process, we help them set up the process and take away all the, uh, the evilness of marketing and sales fighting because it just becomes data centric. It'd be interesting to dig into this bit a little bit more. So let's assume that we've got those 10 first customers and we're solving a problem and we're starting to understand the value we actually do deliver, not just what we think, but actually what the customer is, is telling us. One of the most interesting challenges that we see is the transition from the founder-led sale to the professional sales organization. Now, this might be on a limited basis, but that's a critical step, isn't it? That is very correct. And I'm going to try to depict this to you, and I'm going to draw on two specific concepts, what makes a founder sales successful and what, what is the difference between value and impact. And so first, I'm going to talk about what makes the founder successful. When a founder builds a company, he or she often does it out of a form of frustration. They see something and they go like, man, I wish that could do better, right? And she looks at a particular problem and thinks to herself, like, uh, that can go a lot easier. In that, they have a really good understanding of the problem. Second that they do, as they start building the product, he or she gets a really good understanding of the solution. That's why they built the product for, right? They wanted to solve that, that problem in the first place. So they end up having lots of knowledge on what the problem is and lots of knowledge on what the solution is. And so often when a founder starts selling based on this, that is enough. They don't need sales skills. They can deliver it in a not so nice way. They can deliver it with a little bit of a rough edge to it because everybody recognizes their knowledge, that they know the problem so well and that they know the solution so well. However, founders who have two, three, five, 10, 15 years of experience with this have accumulated the knowledge over time. That knowledge is not accumulated by a salesperson. And in particular, when you're selling a very innovative product that is you know, fairly new on the market, salespeople haven't really accumulated that 10 years of depth of understanding the problem and so on. And so they need a little tidbit of information for that. They need a little bit of the problem, a little bit of the understanding, by far not enough. 
Now they're not selling as well. And so they need to use their sales skills. They cannot rely on the information. So instead they are losing sales skills. And those sales skills are generally around what they call a value proposition, price positioning, and so on. Now, in this situation, a founder often says to the sales team, "Is like I don't understand what's so hard about selling. You know, like you know, like I sell these deals all day long myself. Why, why do you guys take so long to sell?" And that is clearly an indication that the value prop is not right. If the value prop was not transferred between the founder and the sales team, you start to find a struggle. The value prop didn't come across because the founder, in a meeting with the prospective client, can drop so much knowledge on them that the prospective client extracts that value proposition out of the entire conversation. A salesperson who doesn't have all that information needs to deliver it. And they come to the conclusion that the value prop that the founder described to them to give doesn't work. Yeah. It is not delivered in the same way. I think it's a really interesting measure of product market fit, but also the readiness to move to the next stage, which is actually we're going to try and replicate it. But if you haven't got in that startup phase through to a point at which you get sales representatives to at or near quota using a standard value proposition and, and a relatively standard pricing within a, a defined customer segment. You know, are you ready to go to the next stage and, and think about how to scale? Well, in those early days, you know, the salesperson isn't really a salesperson. Let me elaborate on that. If you're a conventional salesperson, what you conventionally should work off is a list of leads that you should call on and our opportunities or clients, however you want to, want to pick that. But you're, you're calling these, this group of, of, of customers who have a prospective problem and you're trying to convert them into a paying customer. However, early stage companies don't have those lists ready yet. And so there is no solid salesperson who wants to put 50% of their commission at stake on something that isn't proven yet. So they're not really sales, they're salespeople and they're selling, but I, I'd rather see them as business development in those, those first round of people. They're building relationships, they're developing a market, they're in the early stage. Only in that next stage that we're entering, does it truly become a sales organization? And that is, again, often a problem as we move from this business development activity to a more sales-driven activity. I think that's a, that's a good link. We're going to move into the grow-up phase. You know, we're, we're thinking of this in the, as the period in which we actually prove we can solve this problem in a repeatable and predictable manner. And also, to be honest, prove that it's worth solving at scale. You know, a really big market exists for this. So this is a, this is a critical step for any founder to, to really kind of professionalize their sales, SaaS sales organization. That's right. It's, as we move to the next stage and we want to start scaling the revenue, we indeed need to make it more professional. We need to hire professional salespeople. But if I now link back to that first problem is in the first stage, guess what was happening? The founder was selling value. And this is one of the Achilles heel of SaaS sales. Originally, value comes from the promise that something will be delivered in the future. It is a really misunderstood thing in SaaS that we have to develop value and value prop. That sooner or later in the future, you will get all this value out of it if you buy today. Value points to something that happens in the future. That is not the same anymore today. Today, we're selling on impact. If you go to any audience in, in maybe outside IT, deep IT stuff, and you ask an audience, say, raise your hand, who here? is looking for a solution to buy 18 months from now. Nobody will raise their arm. Audience is, is here to buy something over the next 90 days. Everybody, almost everybody raises their arm. People look to acquire short-term impact, which is very different from traditional B2B sales, which was long-term impact. And so they're looking for short-term impact. 
And that was not what the founder really worked off in the beginning. The founder worked off this vision, this value that you could offer. And that's the reason why we said earlier on, you need to learn from your customers how you're impacting their business. Tell us a little bit more about that and how that translates into a more professional sales organization. Sure. So if I listen carefully and what we need to look to is in generally in professional sales organizations, the first thing that they need is leads, right? They need leads to fuel their sales engineer. Am I right? Yeah, of course. Okay. And and so so they're going to look for leads. And in general, they're looking for leads who are a fit. I just want a bank. Which other 20 banks can I win? And so they go after winning, uh, creating a list of 20 more banks, and they're going to go after banks. Now, let's say that we were selling an, an elevator to a bank, right? And I'm just using a, you know, like a, something. If you look at an elevator, we go like, well, banks are normally, you know, like uh, in, in London, there are multi-story buildings. They probably need it. Then I'm looking for banks who have multi-stories. That is what we call a fit. Most organizations looking to scale, looking for finding companies who are a fit. And that is the problem. Once we start talking to the bank, in this case, the bank says, well, the reason I need an elevator is we just landed a government contract and the government contract dictates that we have to have, uh, you know, like physically handicapped people have to make sure to get an entry to every floor. That is what we call a pain. The pain is the landing of the government contract. And the landing of the government contract is just not unique to banks. It is unique to any multi-story building that received government funding. That is the pain that was identified. What companies today are very accustomed to is following the marketing mindset of fit. And what they should follow when you're selling on this is what is the pain. And the pain is what you get when you're talking to the customer and they tell you about the impact from those first 10 customers. You need to go and start looking for customers who have a pain that you can solve and with your product who you can impact. So we're making that transition. We've understood in the early stage the the value. We've translated that into language that is impact and, and pain. And then over the next two to three years, I really need to develop the resources, the, the strategy, the, the processes to repeat and scale. Just take us through kind of the number of kind of critical steps that a, that a, a SaaS organization needs to go to, to structure a highly scalable and predictable SaaS business model. Great. So in order to now make this scalable and create a scalable business model, what I essentially do is I interview a simple salesperson, you know, one, one of the better salespeople, and say, like, take me through which steps you take to become successful. And the salesperson says, well, first I have a discovery call, and then I do a demonstration. After that, I submit a proposal and so on. Each of these steps that need to be figured out, like what happens in this step, in the discovery call, which questions do you ask? Which use cases do you use? During the demonstration, which specific screens do you show? Which specific elements of the product do you highlight? And so each of these steps, I then catalog. And I catalog, not like with a virtual unlimited amount of tasks, but with like five, 10, 20 tasks that are associated with that. That obviously becomes what they call the sales process. Then we record a few examples of each. What does a great discovery call sound like? What does a great demonstration look like? Now we have an example, a first model to work from. And then we train people on that. Only then can you scale. What I found the most intriguing as a former semi-pro athlete is that per today, most sales organizations, first of all, are not executing a process. Second of all, they're not listening to their own calls and reviewing them. And thirdly, they're not practicing, no process, no call to listen to, and no practicing. And so folks and listeners out there, I want to let you know the following. 
you are essentially paying a professional salary to a group of amateurs, if that's the case. There's no qualms about it, right? Yeah, who, whose fault is that? Well, I'll call everybody who's listening and allows for this. It's your fault because then I have the, the highest chance of somebody doing about it. But this is happening every day. This is not the problem. And let me make this statement also clear. This is not the problem of the 23, 25-year-old millennial that you just brought on and that you say is like, in the old days, we used to sell like this, just grow a pair. And they don't know what they stepped into. So you can't blame the newbie on the team saying, oh, you're not selling. This traditionally, this modern sales organization that we deal with demands a process, demands practice and training in order to make sure they do it right. And so we got to give them an opportunity. And in SaaS, that is a real importance. Uh, there's a reason why that's real important. Yeah. I mean, process, practice and training and learning from every single interaction to optimize that process every step of the way. So let's assume we've, we're going through this phase and, and we've, we've started to understand how to engineer repeatable practices, processes and, and training. We're really starting to understand how to, how to hire people, how to onboard them, how to, to help them get up to speed and become, become productive. To the next phase that says, Do you know what, and now we're, we're, we're getting into the 10 to 20 million or perhaps the 20 to 50 to 200 million. How do you kind of conceptualize that fundamental challenge from, we talked about startup, are we solving a problem with this? Well, solving, grow up, we're actually figuring out how to, to do this in repeatable ways and scale up. Actually, we need to get really big, really fast in, in a highly capital efficient and productive ways. How do you categorize the challenge of, uh, of that phase? Big question. No, it's a big question, but you know, like it actually doesn't happen in that phase. That phase is execution, and that it, it is almost the easiest phase of all. It, well, it has its own problems. What we missed in that stage number two, right? Uh, which in your case is the grow up phase. What we miss in that stage, which is really important, is that you actually need to accumulate data. Where previous organizations were just looking at, at success stories, or you know, like, hey, that market seems to be hot. This now has become a very data analytical phase, the grow up stage. That stage is where we need to develop a data discipline in the company because that discipline is what takes us to the scale-up phase. If you don't develop that in phase number two, if you're not data-driven, if you don't understand if your uh, winning ratio is going up, what your sales cycle length is, if it's decreasing, where churn is coming from, which SDRs are finding the best leads, if you cannot develop that. Now, I'll give you three metrics, and I want you to, every company, in that stage two, need to be able to think in three different data metrics. Number one, volume metrics. Most do this. Volume metrics is how many leads are, how many visitors on our website, how many MQLs from those MQLs, um, you know, how many SQLs. This is very volumetric driven. Okay. Most companies and most sales and marketing organizations do that. Second two, conversion metrics, which means the connection between these. What's the MQL to SQL conversion rate? And I'm not looking at it statically. I need to know when did it get better and why did it decline? And then the third one, performance metrics. And this is what most companies do not do. Performance metrics with the data that is now available allows me to indicate which salesperson is more successful. If Johnny closes deals, a few more deals at a lot faster rate than Tammy, who takes a little bit more time to close the customers, and I have to fire one of the two, then many would be feel inclined to fire Tammy because she takes you know, longer to close fewer deals. However, based on performance metrics, we see that customers that she closed actually stayed longer and they started buying a lot more and they started growing and they, they provided all this wealth of new clients moving forward. Why? 
because Tammy was actually really selecting her customers and qualifying them and doing proper education, where Johnny was just closing the deals on the dock. Performance metrics tell us which one, which, which should we value. Folks, the time has come for all your organizations to start looking at performance metrics, obviously to continue to look at volume metrics and conversion metrics, but performance metrics moving forward is the name of the game. That allows us to enter that third stage because now we know when, where, and who we can scale. It sounds very much what you're talking about. The sales is becoming more and more of a science. Absolutely. I don't know if that was proper to say, <laughs> but it's, it's absolutely the case. I think that what we're starting to discover is that, you know, like any other trade, art is still there. It's only 10%. What we want people to do is use those 10% of artwork really where it's most applicable and not use it for all the unprocessed driven activities. We believe that the science is taking over. Metrics are becoming available. We can now analyze calls and understand where it goes wrong. By the way, having listened to thousands of calls and, and analyzed in a 30-minute call, where do you think it goes wrong in the minutes of a call? Where do you think that, that most calls go wrong? In the beginning, in the middle, or in the end? I've got a one in three shot here. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to go for the beginning. Yeah, me too. Yeah, in the beginning. Did you know that the customers highest engaged and early on gave you the most vital data? Yet you didn't respond or didn't listen to it. And therefore, they started to retract their information flow to you because you didn't, you know, you were not deemed worthy of the information that we're going to give. Right around five, six, seven minutes is where the real call takes place. And most salespeople uh, have a hard time picking that up. Professionals, B2B sales professionals are not. But, you know, like, you know, new generations who are not trained on that have a hard time overcoming mm. it. So let's say we've, we've understood the process, the practice, the training. We've become very data-driven in terms of the, the actual performance. So now we're ready to, to really bulk up. You know, we're, we're ready to build a category-leading, let's grow this business from 20 million to 50 million to 100 million. I mean, this is a, this is a huge execution challenge with a lot of complexity. Just talk us through how you go about that transition. I mean, you said that's the easy part. You want to just elaborate on yeah, that? It's the easy part because the step that you need to take here is the easiest to solve, although many don't want to do it. And I don't know whether that is just pure stubbornness or, or, or what it is. Once we get into that third phase and we start to you know, scale up, there's a saying, it, culture eats strategy for breakfast. It is about the importance of culture. And in that first phase, culture is really important. You know, like is, is what, what is one of the foundations where you, where you start to scale on. And that means that your recruiting department, culture is very hard to train. Culture is in somebody. So the best thing that you do is to, to, to get a hold of that during, during recruiting. In your sales organizations, let me give you a few basic examples. Obviously, I can train somebody how to take notes. But you know what? Taking notes is something that we believe that you should recruit on strongly. If a candidate is not taking notes during the interview, we believe that there's a cultural mismatch from the get-go for a sales position. If you're not interested in listening to the customer, even when the product is yourself, and so we set up very specific tricks, such as, you know, give them the five key points that they need to accomplish today. If they don't take it down and the third person asks, what were the five key points that you needed to accomplish today? And they can't repeat it. It's, you know, it's a non-match. We believe that the signals that they're sending off like that are extremely important to identify culture. If, for example, a candidate is being offered a glass of water, he leaves the, the room and doesn't want to take the trash with him, is that really not important or is it actually quite important? And we believe that those things, those cultural things are super important. This means that interviewing a person in a, in a, across the desk may not always work. Taking a person out 
you know, grabbing a cup of coffee, walking downstairs, just to see what how that person interacts and engages with with the surroundings. I give you this example. I'm interviewing this executive for uh, for a company, and uh, we're sitting up at you know, like on behalf of of, of one of the portfolio companies. I'm interviewing this candidate, and as I uh, go grab a cup of coffee, we walk into the hallway of the building, and right as we leave the building, the lady looks over her shoulder and asks the lobby manager, "Hey Joe, can I bring you a cup of coffee?" And Joe looks, oh, no, Claire, thanks, thanks anyway. Thanks for asking. And I go, oh, you know, Joe. She says, no, no, but I was just sitting in the lobby. I was just catching up with him. And, and we were chatting about how, how he loves coffee. That is a hire. For me, that obviously other things need to, come, need to be indicated, but that is a cultural fit. Person shows empathy, respect, listen, took notes, all that right there without doing it. Claire wasn't trying to be a salesperson and swindling Joe into liking it so that this moment would occur. She didn't know that. That was a natural thing she did. That is what we call a cultural fit. The people that you attract and hire, they are the one, at this point in time, your company is not hiring two, three, four salespeople anymore. They're hiring 10, 20, and not just in sales, but also in customer success, in all customer-facing roles. And all these customer-facing roles, what we start to see is that selling is not just an activity that is just you know like only exclusive for the people in the sales position. Selling is an activity or is a, is a skill set that needs to be exhibited all the way from the first person who communicates with the customer, whether that is in paper, writing, whether that is in, in, in a billboard sign or whether that is by talking to a customer, all the way to the end, customer success, the onboarding specialist, the renewal, person doing renewal, the upsell, the cross-sell, everybody that engages with the customer needs to understand and realize that the ability to have a conversation with the customer is the ultimate sales skill set that they need to master. As we see as people grow through these three stages, when they start to, in the beginning, they're startup mode. So they really want to get going with their sales. In the second, they are now scaling up and, and growing up through it, uh, through that mode. That's the second phase. In the third phase, they're entering that scale-up mode. Now, I want to give you the the view that what I've seen, the big aha moment, the big reveal that I've discovered myself. And it's, it's not that complicated as, as many know from magicians. When you hear the reveal, you go like, really, that was it? So let me give you the really, that is it kind of experience. <laughs> that experience comes from the following. B2B sales traditionally has been built around low volume, high dollar figures. That market the entire B2B market, or most of it, has been very centric as we know it and as we're, we're, what most of our startups address and most of our portfolios companies address is what they call a rainmaker market. It follows the Pareto rule where 20% of the salespeople generate 80% of the business, right? Now, here's why you sell a million-dollar software package that would work, Paul, right? Exactly. <laughs> okay, now guess what? I don't sell that multi-million-dollar package for multi-million dollars anymore. I sell that for... $8,000 a month or $1,000 a month. So my salesperson, my rainmaker, how is a rainmaker going to become a, a rainmaker with an $8,000 a month package that is worth on 12 months, $96,000? I'm taking a high ACV down here. So the Pareto rule suddenly is broken. 20% of the top performers cannot generate 80% of the revenue anymore. And so the big reveal here is when the 20% of the rainmakers were performing, and generated 80% of the revenue. What was the remaining 80% of that team doing? If 20% generates 80%, that the remaining 80% generates 20%, right? So the B performers were doing 20%. Now in SaaS sales, however, the B performer, because of the low ACV, is now suddenly being forced 
to do 80% because the superstar rainmakers, those 20% now only generate 20%. And so suddenly the B performer is having to produce 80%. Now, previously they generated 20%. That means that the B performers have to produce at the 4X the rate at SaaS. That, my friends, is the Achilles heel of SaaS sales. Those people who get what I just explained understand that it now has become a more of a factory approach where volume is the name of the game, volume of deals. And I'm not talking about volume as in millions. I'm talking the volumes as in like three, four, five deals every month is very different than being dependent on one or two multi-million dollar deals every year. Have you witnessed, and that would be probably our last question, have you witnessed a lot of companies that have understood, but not only understood, but actually put that into action? I think that as soon as companies are data-driven, think of companies like a HubSpot, then this is the logical outcome, and then, and then they find their way. If it's not data-driven, and you're generally following an, you know, like an approach, an alpha sales approach, a hard-nosed sales approach, then you're probably uh, still stuck in trying to understand what is going on. And unfortunately, that is why so many SaaS companies fail. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. And what we now start to see is uploading thousands of leads and starting to send cold email. That decade has come to an end. And today we're in a decade that companies who follow process will start to exceed moving forward. And I think that uh, we'll see more and more companies like the likes of HubSpot, Resultados Digitai over in Brazil is very much like it. Uh, more and more companies start to develop that, whether that is through the use of a sales force or through the use of their product. But the industrialization of the role of sales and creating that a well-trained, process-driven organization, that time has come. One of the things I really value about doing this, uh, this, this series of where we really dig into the key challenges of startup, grow up and scale up is the, is the opportunity to, to learn. And I always enjoy the conversations with Jacko and always brings an interesting perspective. So um, thank you, Jacko, very much indeed. And look forward to working with you on, on many of our portfolio in the coming years. Well, thanks for the opportunity. My company's called winningbydesign.com. And you know, going to the website, you will find all about it. Um, uh, may I ask to go on my soapbox for a second and share my view on how we can change the world? Please. So at the end of this podcast, and as, as a listener, I want to ask you, what makes you you? How are you going to change the world? If this would be a podcast for doctors we would probably say, look, you know, becoming a great doctor, you know, you're going to great uh, do something. If you're an engineer, keep building and innovating. That is great. But for those of you who are marketing and sales, may I ask you for a brief second to think, how are you going to change the world? Now, let me tell you, as you think about that, what do you think the world is most in need of at this point in time? What is the biggest challenge that we have to sell? I believe that the biggest challenge that we're facing right now is the lack of communication. In, not just in America, where we see all across the world, it is as norm, normal norms and values have subtly dissipated. People are not listening to each other. My answer, my call to action for you is the number one problem is people are not communicating. What are we, marketing and sales, good at? What do we do? We're here to help people communicate with each other. So maybe this is our time, our decade. Maybe we should learn people to have a conversation. We are, after all, the conversational specialist. And if you and your teams can include that, how to have a conversation with your customer, and we create a million people around the world who start to become conversational specialists, then I believe we truly can change the world. What is certain is that we all need more Yakos in our world. On that, Yako, thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.